I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... So the pandemic has really been a perfect storm in terms of misinformation. I mean, right from the beginning, there's been false content and viral rumors about the source of it and about how to treat it and how to inoculate against it. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Our guest today is Alan Miller. He's the founder and CEO of the News Literacy Project. Yes, news and literacy can coexist, and Alan will tell us why. He's talking about developing critical thinking skills in 10th graders, 11th graders, seniors in high school, so they can tell what's true and what's not. A skill that seems to be kind of getting weak in a lot of us oldsters. He wants to fight back, and he wants to make sure that soon... We will have a bunch of people surfing the web who can tell a conspiracy theory from what actually happened. Here's our conversation. Alan, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Mark. As some might surf your website, there's uh, the about area that all websites have. And you proceed to tell folks in your about area some percentages that are eye-poppingly scary about the number of people in America, when surveyed, that can tell the difference between truth and fact or can identify truth in sources and stuff like that. Let's just start right there. Let's scare the heck out of our listeners by you recounting some of the things that either got you started a new news literacy project or that you scare people with when they visit to the about area. Well, what got me started was uh, I was a reporter at the Los Angeles Times uh, in 2006, and I was invited to speak to 175 sixth graders at my daughter's middle school at Pyle about what I did as a journalist and why it mattered. And at that time, I was already concerned about two things. One was how my own daughter, who was 12, was accessing and evaluating this tsunami of sources of news and other information, and the collapse of the business model for journalism and whether there continued to be a demand uh, for quality news. And Julia brought home 175 handwritten thank you notes that night. We read them all aloud, and that was the seed of the idea that grew into the News Literacy Project. The information landscape has only become exponentially more fraught since that time. While we have more good and valuable information available at our fingertips than ever before, it is being overwhelmed by a tsunami of conspiratorial thinking and viral rumors and false content. And what we've seen is that while the next generation may be digital natives, uh, they, they are woefully unprepared to successfully navigate this landscape and discern credible information. And it's not just students. It's the population as a whole. We are now facing really an existential threat to democracy with people being unable to discern fact from fiction. And that's our mission, to help give people the tools to be able to do that and to be informed and engaged participants in a democracy. So since 2006, to your point, many newspapers have either been stripped of their value or power or certainly their staff or gone out of business. If you could return newspapers to power, do you think that would be one of the ways to get us back on the track? Or do you think that it's sort of over and and that those old traditional tools that we all relied on, I say we all, people of my age, are, are gone and this new digital native presence is not able to understand what a printed product would mean to them? Well, the truth is that people now primarily get their information from from devices from, and social media. Even news tends to be interspersed with so much else that's not intended to inform 
in a dispassionate, accurate, contextual way, but is intended to inflame and exploit and persuade. You know, we, we've moved on to a, a different era. Uh, one of the things we've discovered with some of the students we've, we've worked with is they don't even necessarily know what news is. Mm-hmm. I mean, they may be getting on their devices mixed in with everything else. But they need to recognize, you know, to be able to discern what is accurate, contextual, credible information as a basis for becoming, you know, informed and active in civic life. And it, as I said, it's not just students, but it's the population as a whole. We're talking with Alan Miller, the founder and CEO of the News Literacy Project based here in Washington, D.C. So the economics are always of interest to me. I was on the board of directors of TheStreet.com, Jim Cramer's financial information company way back. And the CEO used to tell us we went from print dollars to digital dimes to mobile pennies. And I think that diminution of value from advertising clearly is where we, where we saw papers go. What are some economic models that you are either supporting or promoting or you're seeing in you, you and your teammates that might be a viable way out of this, this sorry situation? Well, I would say, first of all, that, that there's no effective way to combat misinformation without including education as a component. So I think that we, you have to start, in my mind, on the demand side. Um, in terms of the supply side, you know, we've seen uh, an enormous number of newspapers go out of business in the last 15 years and many, many journalism jobs lost. There are some nonprofit models now that have come forward to at least begin to fill a little bit of that gap. I mean, you can look at organizations like ProPublica and, and the Marshall Project as examples. Um, there are numbers others in the local communities, including those that are serving particularly underserved communities that have not gotten the kind of representation that they deserve and need in journalism traditionally. So I, I think in philanthropy has stepped in to be supportive of that. The new organizations and nonprofits are a great addition to the information landscape, but, but they are not able to compensate for what has been lost. And at the same time, there's just exponentially more sources that are – intending to, to sell and persuade and mislead and inflame. The key is the consumer, the listener, the viewer is in charge. And they decide what they're going to access and when and how, and most important, what they're going to do with that information. And so, again, that's why they need the tools to be able to discern, you know, to be responsible about what they're consuming and sharing. So you made a great analogy. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Supplier and, I mean, so supply and demand, right? So demand is the reader. And your daughter, way, way back in 2006 at Pyle, for those listening, a local school here in the D.C. area, forgive the term magic wand. Are there elements of the education system in the U.S., either K through 12 or even higher ed, that you wish you could slap on some some training program, some some new way of thinking? I shouldn't say new, some a return to a way of thinking about uh, being choosy and and, uh, and selective on sources of news. It's absolutely imperative that students get this critical thinking skill of how to discern what to believe, what to trust. I think the most effective way is, is to see a change in state learning standards. Agreed. We've got 50 states, and they all have different standards. We've seen a diminution of civics over the years. Uh, that's beginning to come back, fortunately. But we think that this uh, is an essential life skill and that, that all states should really require proficiency in it for graduation from high school to give students the ability to be successful, uh, not only in life in general, but particularly as equal and informed and engaged participants in the civic life of their communities in the country. Well, you've had two kind of go your way recently. 
tell us what those states are and what they decided to do. Well, there are, are two states that have now adopted learning standards that include essentially what we call news literacy. It doesn't matter what it's called. It's, it's really, again, this critical thinking skill. And those are Illinois and Texas. Um, and so, you know, we're working with uh, educators in those states and, and with others to introduce them to the News Literacy Project and particularly to our Checkology Virtual Classroom, you know, which is an engaging, cutting-edge platform with real-world lessons led by journalists and other experts on the First Amendment and digital media. And, you know, other states are, are beginning to move in this direction uh, and to recognize that this really is needs to be part of uh, the next generation's uh, education moving forward. So other entities, not that you have competition, I think there's so much to do, you probably probably welcome competition to grow this category. But I met with Stephen Brill, if you have followed what he's trying to do, and, and actually my brother-in-law and sister-in-law went to school with Stephen Brill, so I've known Stephen a long time. He tried sort of a people-powered version of this, as, or is trying, I guess. What are some ways that his efforts, yours, and maybe other entities you want to name, what are some of the differences or maybe the similarities you're seeing? Well, we think that the, we welcome others into the field because this is just an enormous challenge. Yep. And giving people um, tools, as uh, Stephen Brill's effort is, to, to be able to just, again, to determine what may be more credible sources than others, uh, I think can be beneficial. There are others who are doing, I mean, there's an f- entire field of media literacy that had been around long before, you know, I helped start the field of news literacy, um, where one approach to teaching media literacy and, and there's a growing number uh, of players who are uh, having impact in this area. I mean, we're, I think we feel we're really the leader in the field and that our approach is the one that's most effective. But this is something that will take uh, a much wider effort um, to really combat uh, the scourge of misinformation. Some would say, final question before we take a break, and again, we're talking with Alan Miller, founder and CEO of the News Literacy Project. Some would say that there's a chunk of the U.S. that are beyond saving. That even if you could inject critical thinking skills into their cranium tomorrow, they've kind of gone too far down some rabbit holes. So this is why we decided to start with with middle school and high school um, there you to go. to to get to get to students when they're forming habits of mind and consumption habits that will last a lifetime, and before they start to move into their own own filter bubbles and 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 perhaps fall down some of those rabbit holes you were referencing. Uh, I think we're never going to reach everybody. Two years ago, we decided that this challenge was so urgent that we couldn't just be reaching the next generation, that we needed to reach everybody else. So we've created tools and resources for the general public as well. And we think that there are people who are, who are open to becoming more uh, proficient in uh, recognizing what is credible and also people who want to be part of a, a solution to the misinformation problem and to be upstanders for facts. And so there's an, I think there's an opportunity here because there's a growing recognition that the proliferation of conspiratorial thinking and the, the inability for us to have a, a common public narrative to agree on basic facts is now really such an urgent threat to democracy that I think that there's a desire by, by a growing number of people to be part of that solution. Where's the Walter Cronkite when you need him? It's News Literacy Project. Alan Miller, founder and CEO, is joining us. We'll be back with more conversation with him after this.
Every week on What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. If you are a D.C. insider and want to know what leaders in other industries are talking about, we give you that insight. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. We want perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. You can reach out through our website or through Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm Mark Walsh, your host, here again with Alan Miller, the founder and CEO of News Literacy Project, a D.C.-based organization that is trying like heck to make sure we all either have, maintain, grow, and use critical thinking skills to understand our sources of news or maybe sources of not news that are just completely polluting a lot of our national conversation. Well, let's start with one perfect example before we get into the organization, where where you're going, and, and how people can can get engaged. Uh, COVID-19, Delta, Omicron seems to be a a flashpoint for a lot of the things that you and I have discussed so far, and certainly that maybe you were founded for. How has your organization responded to to the epidemic and information and news around it? So the pandemic has really been a perfect storm in terms of misinformation. I mean, right from the beginning, there's been false content and viral rumors about the source of it and about how to treat it and how to inoculate against it and how big, in fact, the uh, challenge is and about uh, mass and so on. You know, we immediately began, put up a, uh, a page on, on COVID, on where to get credible information, combating misinformation. We have a weekly newsletter. Uh, we have two versions called The Sift and Get Smart About News. We focused a lot on specific examples of that. And we've continued to make it. We, we have a podcast called Is That a Fact? Uh, we did an episode about uh, related to COVID misinformation. So we've, we've sought to do our part. Again, the ability of the country to effectively combat it and get back to turn it from the pandemic to an endemic is really dependent upon people having accurate information and believing accurate information about, particularly about vaccines, but also about how to stay safe. Well, since we both have had chips in, installed in our blood because of Bill Gates, we, we're probably being monitored now by Microsoft and their overlords. But that's one flashpoint. I guess, where's QAnon in your, in your world as well? Because that seemed like another, maybe now, sadly, legacy flashpoint, but it continues to be an incredible force in our, in our national conversation. Yes, well, the, the growth of QAnon is, is, is another example of uh, literally, you know, millions of Americans falling down rabbit holes and believing a truly uh, surreal um, conspiracy theory, not just believing it, but of course, acting on it. Right. And, you know, really, I think of 2020 as the year when that kind of conspiratorial thinking came from the out of the dark corners of the web and onto the streets and into the U.S. Capitol. Yeah. And, you know, we saw that manifest, of course, with the insurrection on January 6th, 2021 as well. And this is an enormous challenge in terms of how you talk to people who are convinced of such things and have made it part of their identity. And one of my colleagues has a approach he calls PEP, which is patience, empathy, and persistence. You can't just dismiss people. You can't uh, make fun of them. You can't expect to turn them around in one conversation. And I think this is a skill that that we're all going to need to acquire uh, as people increasingly see friends and 
family members who are sucked into these kind of cult-like thinking. Parts of my family are uh, are, are getting there, and it's just turned uh, holidays, although COVID's changed holidays, but holiday conversations have become far more difficult, and I'm sure you're seeing that all over. So what are some ways – you you have an incredible board of directors, an incredible board of, of um, sort of national media leaders in your board of advisors – Obviously, you seem to be your funding has increased as far as I can tell from your 990s. So things are going very well on the economic side. What are some kind of next steps for you guys? I know the just the website itself, News Literacy, News Literacy Project. You can talk about where people can go. But what's what's sort of the next stage for you guys? So we're continuing to expand our reach in the nation's classrooms. Uh, our virtual classroom is now being used by educators in all 50 states. Uh, we're working directly with uh, over 50 districts, including the largest in New York, L.A., Chicago, but also districts in South Carolina, Missouri, Alabama, and Texas. We're working directly with Loudoun County here in the in the D.C. area, and we've got educators using the platform in D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. Uh, we're also doing much more with the general public now, and we, we really want to turn our, our mission into a movement where people say, I want to be part of an information solution instead of the misinformation problem and get involved with us. There are a number of ways people can do that. They can learn more at newslit.org, our site, or checkology.org for the virtual classroom. We've got infographics and quizzes and tips that we're happy to share. Uh, as I mentioned, we've got uh, newsletter, weekly newsletters. All of our resources, by the way, are free. So people can, su- can subscribe to the SIFT if they're educators and get smart about news uh, for the general public. The, you have a monthly podcast called Is, Is That a Fact? So if people want to learn more about us or reach out to us, uh, they can do so at info at newslit.org, or they can contact me directly at amiller at newslit.org. Tell me about Checkology. You've mentioned it a few times. It's a program for schools, right? So our Checkology virtual classroom is, is an online platform that's being used by educators throughout the country. And we've got lessons that give uh, students a foundation in, in news literacy skills. Uh, so it starts with info zones, how to know the difference between news, opinion, advertising, raw information, entertainment based yep. on primary purpose. We pick up from there with a lesson on misinformation and how to counter that and recognize it. We created a, a lesson after the 2020 election on conspiratorial thinking. And we have a lesson on bias, how to recognize uh, bias in news and other information, but also how to recognize your own bias that you bring to what it is that you're consuming. So I assume you present yourself, you and your colleagues at the organization, as a nonpartisan group. It seems to be getting harder and harder to be nonpartisan or to not be accused of being partisan, even though your attempt to stay nonpartisan is heartfelt. Where are you guys on that? So we are rigorously nonpartisan. Uh, I and others on the board brought that from journalism as part of our DNA, and it's reflected in all of our resources as well as uh, the makeup of our board and and others who are involved with us, um, you know, we use examples of media from from both sides of the political spectrum. Um, the I think the really important thing is that we're teaching people not what to believe, but how to determine what to believe, mm-hmm. and uh, giving them the tools to make those judgments in everything that they encounter. So. You know, we ha- are aware that some educators occasionally have a questions from parents um, because we are using sort of the standards of quality journalism and journalists to teach this critical thinking skill. So we've actually prepared some resources 
uh, for educators to share with parents about mm-hmm. what it is we're doing and the fact that we are rigorously nonpartisan. One of the things I'm very proud of is that we are in schools in red states and blue states and purple states and urban areas and rural areas. And I think that's, that is a testament to the fact that we have been so uh, rigorously nonpartisan in our approach. Did you ever think you'd see a day where school board meetings have become as inflammatory as, as they are today? Because my point, I think, is there's some code words now. Critical race theory is sort of the natural example. But I think I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if a, if a parent would object to teaching math soon. I mean, there's nothing seems to be out of bounds for being the third rail kind of issue in school board meetings. How are you trying to wind your way through these new crazy events well, you know, we continue to emphasize the fact that we are we are nonpartisan and non-ideological. Okay. And continuing to talk about the work that we do in, in that respect and the fact that, you know, we have been able to be in a wide range of, of districts and working with educators across the board. Yeah. So we're talking with Alan Miller, the founder and CEO of Newsletters Who Project. So the question is always begged. Social media platforms, their global influence, certainly their domestic influence is super strong. Which ones have reached out or not? Which ones are supportive? What's what's the what's the lay of the land there with you guys? So Facebook was a funder in the past. Uh, we have funding now from Google, which we're very appreciative of, and we've gotten support from others in Silicon Valley, which we welcome. So the social media, or I shouldn't say social media, the, the, the social movement kind of Valhalla that you described earlier, moving from being, you know, what you're doing now to a larger play. The examples, of course, are mad, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, the smoking cessation and other real, they took decades. So this is perhaps your long, long game, as you say, with sixth grade to 12th grade, stuff like that. Are those some of the models that you hope to hope to galvanize? So we would like to turn our mission into a national movement and to get people to really have a sense of personal responsibility about the news and other information they consume and particularly that they share so that people feel that they are going to be part of this information solution. And we do want to see a sea change along the lines that we've seen on issues like smoking, drunk driving, and littering. The difference is, as you said, it took a long time to do that. And we don't feel we have a long time. Mm -hmm. We feel that we really need to move much more quickly. And that's why we welcome additional partners and patrons and participants uh, to help us uh, really change the dynamic here and avoid seeing us move into an information dystopia. Do you have any international partners? Do you see models in other democracies or non-democracies where the same needs are, are extant and you have a local partner you can help or vice versa? So when we created Checkology, we, we thought of it as a domestic platform. It's in English. It's a lesson on the First Amendment. We were surprised initially when educators in more than 100 countries registered to use it. We quickly saw, of course, that misinformation and disinformation are, are essentially a global pandemic that know no national boundaries. Mm-hmm. We've seen a growing interest in our work in, in a number of countries. We've had journalists from Europe and Asia and elsewhere do pieces on us and our work. And we're beginning to explore the possibility of really growing our profile mm-hmm. globally and perhaps even creating a, a global version of Czechology at some mm-hmm. point. I know you're nonpartisan, but have there been political leaders or political wannabe leaders that have joined your board or funded you and have been important in your growth or do you try and stay away from that specific source of energy and potential funding? 
because of the, I guess, the noise that may surround their their participation? Well, our board is really bipartisan. Yeah. Uh, so we've got, you know, individuals who have were served in the administration of George W. Bush and the Obama administration. Uh, we there you go. Very prominent uh, Republican pollster on the board, and we pride ourselves on that. Uh, and even to the extent that our funders um, have any sort of leanings, they also are, are very much bipartisan as well. There you go. So on the show, what, what's working in Washington, we always wrap up with a if-I-ruled-the-world moment. So imagine you ruled the world, or let's just say the U.S., for a day. What's the one thing you would mandate, and what's the one thing you would forced to be stopped? Well, if it's a matter of mandates, uh, I would <laughs> say that, that really, it's really vital that states adopt learning standards that require students to learn how to determine what to believe, what's credible before they graduate from high school. Mm-hmm. I think that that's an ultimately a long-term fix to this challenge. Mm-hmm. In terms of what I would want to see people stop doing, I would say to stop sharing misinformation. Mm-hmm. It cannot get the kind of virality it does without many of us often inadvertently right. uh, spreading it and infecting others. And so I think you know it's critical that people pause, especially when they see things that invoke their emotions, mm-hmm. anger, fear, concern, anxiety, and ask themselves what they're looking at. Who created it? Can you tell? Is this credible? Is this something that I should share and something that I should act on? Important stuff. Tell our listeners again where they can find you on the web. The News Literacy Project can be found at uh, newslit.org and our virtual classrooms, checkology.org. And if you're interested in getting involved with us, you can send an email to info at newslit.org. Alan Miller, CEO and founder of the News Literacy Project. Important work and a social movement that someday we might look back and say, we heard it here first. Alan, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, There's a way to get involved with the show. You can DM us on Twitter if you have one of two outcomes. A, you want to be a sponsor. Or B, if you have a person or an issue or a company or any entity that you think we should be featuring. Again, DM us on Twitter. It's What's Working in Washington. Thanks for listening. You know, I often find myself wondering, what's great about Washington, D.C.? And then I'm reminded about our business, our government, our arts, our not-for-profits, our education arenas. All are fantastic and special, not only to our nation, but really to the world. I'm glad I live here. I hope you are, too. And I hope that our show continues to give you some enlightenment, some information, some actionable intelligence, and hopefully some enthusiasm about what works in Washington, D.C., So once again, thanks for listening. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.